At the Foot of the Cross, a monthly podcast from the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Hello everyone and welcome to At the Foot of the Cross. Might seem like a strange name as we're in Easter time now, but nonetheless. This is our new monthly podcast giving you the lowdown of what's going on here at the Secretariat of the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. And today we're talking about the Bishops' Plenary Meeting. That's taking place at the start of May in Cardiff. A first such meeting in Wales for some 18 years, so we'll talk about that. We also, hot off the press, have the announcement of a new Archbishop of Cardiff and Bishop of Menevia in persona episcopi. We will then have an update on the synodal process from Father Jan Novotnik, sitting opposite me, and Father Chris Thomas, of course, who will give us the lowdown on the plenary in Wales. It hasn't escaped anyone's attention, of course. The ongoing tragedy of the conflict in Ukraine, and we have an update from the eparchal bishop of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, Bishop Kenneth Novakovsky. And then we'll also have a scripture reflection, specifically on the Acts of the Apostles, from Fleur Dorrell, who's looking after our scripture project, The God Who Speaks. That will give you a little context, I hope, to our Easter daily podcast series, Reading Acts in Easter. If you want to check that out, please do. You can go to cbcew.org.uk slash podcast, singular, not podcasts, podcast. Right now, I'm, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by our General Secretary, Canon Chris Thomas, and our Director of Mission, Father Jan Novotnik. So... Where do we start? Should we start with the Bishop's Plenary? First time in 18 years, taking place in Cardiff. Tell us a bit about the Catholic Church in Wales. Well, Christianity in Wales is very ancient. When Christianity spread from Jerusalem, there were effectively two routes. There was called the Roman route, which was the way in which Christianity came to to England in 597 with uh, St. Augustine in Canterbury. But there was also the route that went through the north of Africa and then up through Spain and through the Celtic lands, through Ireland, Scotland. And Wales was certainly part of, uh, of that route. And uh, it was distinguished by a real sense of fervent preaching and distinctive monastic communities. So when you look at the austere monasticism of uh, the the early Welsh church and the great saints, so for instance, if we take three of them, the great saint of Wales, Dewi Sant, uh, St. David himself, who founded his monastery at Manu. People don't really know what what Manu means. Manu is the place of St. David's uh, and uh, Latinized its Menevia. And of course, we have the announcement of Bishop Mark O'Toole, who is now not only the new archbishop-elect of Cardiff, but also the Bishop of Menevia in his own person. David founded his monastery there and lived a very uh, ascetic life, a fervent preacher of the gospel, a lover of nature, a community that lived the true Christian values of that sort of early monasticism. And it became a center of teaching. Two of his sort of contemporaries, Ishtid, who founded his monastery and school at uh, Llanishtid Vaur, or as we would call it in English, Llantwit Major, (laughs) and Tylo, who was Bishop of Llandaf. These just three of the great saints of Wales. Tylo, particularly for me, because uh, I was brought up in the church in Wales and I was baptised in St. Tylo's church in Cairithen in Swansea. And Tylo has always been a particular uh, devoted saint of mine, uh, sort of a patron in some respects. And 
they engendered in the people not only the real sense of faith and beauty of our Christianity, but through their preaching and through their language and through their faith, they actually engendered the sense of peoplehood, a shared national identity. And this lived on until the progression of the Roman church effectively into the land and and in some ways the unification of the Celtic and the Roman churches which ultimately was uh, defined by the Synod of Whitby with the uh, the two uh, resolutions of the, of the singular date of Easter for instance. But Wales has never lost its own identity as a Christian land. There was obviously the effects of the Reformation but when we look at Catholicism in Wales from the period of probably the mid-1600s, late 1600s, when the Vicars Apostolic began to work across our country, the, the country was divided into, into four. Wales was part of the Western District. And later on in that period, what was interesting was that the sort of exiled monastic communities began to return and after Catholic emancipation in 1829, there was a re-establishment of the worshipping communities in South Wales particularly. And in 1850, when uh, the hierarchy was restored, one of the original 13 suffragan sees of Westminster was the Diocese of Newport and Menevia, which was created to cover the whole of the south of Wales. The north of Wales was included in the Diocese of Shrewsbury. And the cathedral was not in Cardiff, but it was actually at Belmont Abbey, which is in Herefordshire. Mm. And in fact, as it stands at the moment, the Archdiocese of Cardiff is the only diocese in Wales that has a bit of England in it because Herefordshire is also included in the Archdiocese. But that wasn't created until 1916 when there was a restructuring with uh, the papal letter uh, Cambria Celtica. And the Archdiocese of Cardiff was created and the Diocese of Menevia was then refounded, as it were. So Wales was divided effectively with a diagonal line with a cathedral up in the north in Wrexham for Menevia and then the Archdiocese of Cardiff in the south with the cathedral at St David's, Metropolitan Cathedral, which still exists. And that continued until 1987 when there was a further reconstruction where a horizontal line was sort of driven across the country between Aberystwyth and Machanthleth and the north became the Diocese of Wrexham, and then the south was divided into Menevia in the west and Cardiff in the east of the south of Wales. So we have three dioceses in Wales, and what's interesting is that uh, the Holy Father appointing Bishop O'Toole as the Archbishop of Cardiff and the Bishop of Menevia in persona episcopi means that the two dioceses remain as ecclesiastical entities, uh, but are united in the very person of the bishop, and so he's the bishop of both dioceses across the south of Wales. And as you said, James, the last time the bishops uh, met in Wales was in 2004. We have to remember that in 1999, Wales became a devolved administration. What's happened in the 20-odd years since then is an increase of the importance of that devolved administration. Over the period, there has been an increase in legislative power and no longer is it sort of regarded as, as an add-on. And in fact, the church in Wales has never really been seen as an add-on to the church in England. To be honest, the way that the church now deals with the civic authorities in Wales is just as important as we do here in England with Westminster. And the devolution process has created a very distinctive character within the principality. You could say 
that Welshness has come to the fore. My own family are in Wales and we're very proud of being Welsh. And not only that, the Senedd and the Welsh government now have really important functions. And for us in the Catholic Church, there are two which are really important. The first is that educational matters have evolved in Wales. And therefore, we have to deal, and the Catholic Education Service has a Welsh officer, Angela Keller, who works in Cardiff, and she deals with Welsh issues surrounding education. I mean, for instance, one of the great differences between education in Wales and in England is that there are no academies in Wales. So we still work on the voluntary aided principle, which is very distinctive from uh, the academisation process that is going on in England. And also health matters are devolved in Wales. And so there are difference in policy on on health. As we Uh, have learned through the coronavirus pandemic. That's correct. And uh, uh, people who live in Wales are blessed because they don't have to pay for prescriptions. Uh, So... uh, Obviously, health and the well-being of people is a very important character, part of our, our, our Catholic teaching. And so the Church in Wales has a very important voice to play in those areas, particularly. And so our meeting in Cardiff is not only important in the fact that we are a Bishop's Conference of England and Wales, but it's important to make a strong statement about Catholic life in the Principality, in Wales itself, and the presence physical presence of our bishops being together will be integral to it. And as part of our plenary work, the bishops will make a visit to the Senedd itself, down to the Millennium Centre and to the Cardiff Bay Area, and we will be holding a reception in Cardiff Castle for Senedd members, for the civic authorities in Wales, to uh, basically show that we are real partners in developing not only the Catholic voice in Wales, but also in building up the whole of the society. We will obviously be transacting our usual business. There's a very full agenda. We'll be looking at things that are of concern. I mean, one of the things that I think that everybody is aware of is the ongoing Ukrainian situation, which you uh, uh, have a, a statement from Bishop Kenneth, but he will be updating the bishops personally. And there will also be reports from the way in which our Catholic communities across the country have been supporting the people of Ukraine. We're also going to be looking at domestic poverty and the issues that are arising now because of the the cost of living issues. Nobody can escape that the cost of living is going up, and these social issues we can't divorce ourselves from, and so we'll be looking at those. And we demonstrated very tangibly during the pandemic how our Catholic communities support people in real need through alleviating poverty through food banks, through other practical, real frontline resources. Now, can we do this more strategically, as well as petitioning government to have better policies in place for the alleviation of poverty. We'll also be looking at the issues that have come forth from the publication of the government's Rwanda policy and refugee issues. We will be looking again at the whole issue of how do we receive, how do we welcome, how do we integrate people who are seeking safety? Because that's always been part of our tradition in this country. We have always been a place where we live according to the freedom of law and uh, we welcome people who are escaping injustices of law uh, in their own countries. 
So those are some of the things that we'll be looking at. And there'll be a bit of more of an update as well on the pilgrimage of the relics of St. Bernadette uh, yes. that will uh, be occurring later on in the year. And pilgrimage, of course, is very much part of the Welsh national culture. Uh, we have great pilgrimage sites in Wales. There's obviously St. David's itself. There's the uh, National Shrine of Our Lady of the Taper, Vaira Bertaivi in Cardigan, and in the north, Holywell and St. Winifred. But the place that I love most is St. Non's Well. St. Non was the, the mother of David. It is uh, part of the tradition that David was born in the middle of a thunderstorm and uh, where he was born at St. Non's is a well. Wells are always associated with, with miraculous, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, miraculous births. And uh, if you go out just uh, along the coast from St. David's, you come to this beautiful little chapel and retreat house and you can walk down to the well, and uh, I always find it a very magical place, a, a place of, of spirituality and a place of pilgrimage. So talking about St Bernadette in Wales with the great tradition of pilgrimage, I think is a really important thing too. Spot on. And I must say, even you know, even if you consider Wales in its beauty, its beaches, its wonderful countryside, it's a great place for 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 rest, for relaxation, for spiritual reflection, isn't it? It's it's a beautiful country. Absolutely, and and. Uh, the whole culture is beautiful. In my house, I have a, a little thing on the wall and it says, to be born Welsh is to be born not with a silver spoon in your mouth, but with music in your heart and poetry in your soul. And I hope that in some way I embody that in my own being. Wow, how do we top that? How do we top that with Father Jan Novotnik? Not very well, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure you have that poetry in your soul and you know why? Because we're going to talk synodality. Oh, lovely. So... I mean, let's be honest, this is a two-year process. It's an ongoing process. It's quite a complicated process in a certain sense as well because we are trying to receive all those responses from the different corners of England and Wales, from our diocese. And their responses have come in. We, we have a, a large document that has come in from uh, you know individuals and, and, and other bodies as well, other organisations too, not just the diocese. So... Heck of a job, Father Yan, I must say. So just tell us a bit about where we're at just now. Uh, okay, James, I think, uh, well, we're in a process, as you say, and I think we've moved into a second, perhaps even a third phase, because I think the first phase was the initial movement from the Holy Father, from Pope Francis, to talk about having a more synodal church, which last summer uh, perhaps came very much out of the blue for people, and we weren't quite expecting it in the way that it happened. And so there's a lot of apprehension, but over the last few weeks and months, and certainly in what we perhaps call the second phase, this diocesan phase, where the Holy Father has asked bishops throughout the world to, to walk with their diocese in a particular way, to, to understand what it means to be a Catholic Christian in the world today. And I think everyone who's listening to this podcast, hopefully, will have had some engagement in this process, or at least heard the word synodality, would have felt that they have answered questions or given a view on what their faith journey is like at the moment. And so, as you say, we have got to a point where we have now received here at the Secretariat of the Bishops' Conference quite hefty document um, which has been collated of responses, those kind of responses from bishops and the priests, the religious, the lay faithful in the diocese, individual responses, and from our Catholic organisations, which are now feeding into the phase which I suppose we could call the national synthesis. And 
what exactly is that? What, what are we expected to produce from a national perspective? From a national perspective, each bishop's conference uh, throughout the world, in fact, is, is called to provide a synthesis of what is happening in that Episcopal conference. So here in England and Wales, we'll be doing one, um, Scotland, say the countries of Europe, you know, every African diocese throughout the whole world will be collating together the responses to send to Rome. Now that sounds, oh gosh, you know, sending it off to Rome, what are they going to do with it? Well, I think the national synthesis is about two things. Yes, it's about fulfilling a request of Pope Francis um, to see what is happening, to take a temperature, I suppose, of what the mission and the life of the Catholic Church is in a particular area. So it informs the Pope because the Pope, we believe, is the successor of Peter. He holds the unity of the whole church. He doesn't have responsibility for guiding the day-to-day -day decisions of a diocese, but he keeps us together in a unity of faith, and in teaching, in our moral life. And then that is embodied in the way that we live in dioceses, um, let's say in England and Wales. So what goes to Rome is a snapshot, let's say, of what is happening in any particular Episcopal conference. Perhaps more importantly than that, and I think uh, we'll come on to perhaps in a moment those who form part of the National Synthesis team, religious and lay men and women and uh, lay faithful to look through the responses and to discern what people have been saying in the Diocese of England and Wales. And we hope that this will be a beginning with the bishops who form part of that group to think about what we can do in the church in England and Wales, in our individual dioceses, but in parishes, and perhaps nationally as a church in England and Wales, um, to promote our faith in Jesus Christ and to make him more known. And I think that's coming through in the responses. And to be honest, it can't be a very easy job because you can't send Rome a couple of thousand pages, can you? It's difficult. How would you assess the challenge of taking all those, you know, I mean, because you want to be as representative as, as is humanly possible. How do you do that? I think it's really, really complicated. Let's say we've got a document at the moment of about 650 pages. Um, now, Rome and the best will in the world have said to us that they would like 10 pages with appendices which are brief. So condensing 650 pages into 10 is a difficult task. So the group that I was talking about when we meet to begin this initial process, and again, it's another phase, it's not gonna be happening in 24 hours, it's gonna be a time of discernment and prayer. Already it has begun as a time of discernment and prayer for those involved in this. So think about what are the general strands that are coming through in people's responses and to make sure that we are hearing that and representing that as well. And I think one of the biggest strands that's coming through for me is that there is a love for the church, there's a love for Christ, there's a love to make his name known. And I think there's a genuine deep desire for us to find more inventive ways of doing that that speak to the culture and the context in which we live without actually watering down our faith, but presenting it to members of the Catholic Church and those from outside the church in perhaps uh, more inventive ways to, to, that respond to people's concerns at this time. Some of the things that Canon Chris has been saying about you know where we are at the moment, a war in Ukraine, the cost of living crisis, refugees and migration issues, climate change, how we treat each other as men and women in the church. 
prayer for vocations, support of priests, support of parish life. And perhaps underlying all of that is this thread that, you know, what we do in church um, when we celebrate our faith and principally as Catholics, we would appreciate that and know that to be our celebration of Sunday Mass. That what we do at Sunday Mass isn't divorced from the rest of our lives. So it informs our prayer during the week, but also our outreach and our service to those around us. And I think in many of the responses, and Canon Chris might want to comment too, um, that's really coming out that we've got a, and I think this actually represents what Pope Francis is saying about the church. We can't just look into ourselves, but this is an exercise in presenting Christ, our faith, our belief, our love of him in our love of neighbour, which is what we celebrate in the Eucharist. And I guess when, you know, we, we can talk about the voluminous nature of what comes in and, and what can be sent out to Rome, but it's also the process that's important, isn't it? Oh, the, the process is absolutely vital because what the Pope wants and we're not looking at sort of what's going to come out at the end of the, of the Synod of Bishops in 2023. No doubt there will be a document. There may not be. Not all synods end up with documents. But it's the embedding of this way of being in the church, which is the important thing. And in some respects, yes, all the dioceses have now sent off submissions to us. And we'll work now on the National Synthesis, which will be sent off to Rome by the 15th of August, which is when they've asked for it. But that's not the end of the process. For a start, the national syntheses will then form in Europe, for instance, a national gathering which will take place in Prague next year under the auspices of the European Council of Bishops' Conferences, CCEE. This is the continental phase. That's the continental phase. And, and there's a sort of iterative process here because we can't consider that the sending off of our, of our diocesan submission to the Bishops' Conference is the end. What has arisen in the diocese has to go back to the diocese and inform the pastoral action and the life of the diocese ongoing. And so think of it as this sort of iterative process where things will go off, but they remain. And then something else will come in which will add to that process. So we are expecting what are called two instrumentum laboris which will come from the Synod office. One will come after this phase, which will inform the uh, European phase or the, the regional phase or the continental phase of the work. And then after that, there will be the, the work that will be done at the Synod of Bishops itself in 2023. So what we're looking at is embedding a new way of being synodal, which is about listening of an openness, a prayerful openness to the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, where we all recognize our unique position as the people of God, each with their own charism, each with their own gifts and talents, each with their, with their own vulnerabilities and their concerns. And all has to be listened to. This first initial process, certainly from what Jan and myself have read from the diocese, a huge number of meetings and conversations have taken place at the grassroots level with our parishes and our communities and our organisations. And they have yielded a real love for the church, real concerns about certain things. You know, we're not going to dodge that. We can't. But also, at the end of the day, the desire to proclaim Christ. And what's been in my mind when I've been reading this over the last week or so is that phrase of, of the Pope Emeritus, Benedict XVI, you know, our faith is not about a book of rules. It's about an encounter with the living person. It is about encounter with Christ. And if we encounter the Lord, how then 
do we proclaim him? One of the real things for me that's coming from what I'm reading is the need for us to be more forceful, as it were, in ensuring that people know their faith. They know the person of Christ. They know how the church has interpreted his teachings over the years. They know how to present that in the modern milieu in which we live, because to a lot of people it seems very arcane and, and disjointed. But there is a fundamental underlying truth to the teaching of Jesus that has a beauty that can't be put under a bushel. You know, you've got to allow that light to shine in the world. It's really interesting what Chris was saying there about the words of Pope Benedict XVI about coming to know the person of Christ. And um, I think I too have been having that thought. And I think it comes through very clearly from what I've been reading, what we've been reading, that people want to know more about the person of Christ. They want to learn more about their faith. And I think we're very fortunate in Pope Francis, who at the beginning of his pontificate in 2013, gave the church um, the document Evangelii Gaudium, the joy of the gospel. And I really think he committed the church to, to that joy of the gospel, which we haven't always lived. And he says that himself, you know, sometimes you meet people, encounter people who've just been to church and they look really miserable. I'm quoting now directly from the Holy Father, Pope Francis. And he said, you know, if we know Christ and it brings a joy in our hearts, then we have to transmit that joy to others. But how do we do that? Well, we have to learn about it, priests and people together. It's not a situation where priests know better and we're trying to tell the laity, but together we're on this journey. And so we have a new directory for catechesis, which is aligned to Evangelii Gaudium and presents a new way, that eternal truth of Jesus Christ, with a joyful trust in what the Lord has done for us. And in the new directory, um, you know, Chris was talking about the beauty of truth, the beauty of knowing the Trinity. That comes through in the new directory and it's that beauty and that truth which I think we can present to the world um, and present to ourselves actually. And in the synodal process, I think there is a great sense people want to know the Lord and they want to have confidence in their relationship with him so that they can confidently proclaim him. And in this time of Easter, you mentioned at the beginning about reading from the Acts of the Apostles, and um, we're taken back through that reading of the Acts of the Apostles to the church as it was beginning. And it's almost like, almost like we're being taken back to that point at the moment, saying, what is it essentially needed to be a Christian today? And in the Acts of the Apostles, you have that sense of the disciples are gathered for the breaking of the bread, uh, listening to the word of God, sharing a life in common, and being charitable. And those four things, I think, underpin for me what this synodal journey is in the light and the joy that Pope Francis asks us to have in being followers of Jesus. Yeah, well, I really like what you both said, actually, about this being about sharing our encounters with the living Christ. That, that is definitely uh, the order of the day. Well, thank you so much for the, for the update on the synodal process. I think we'll be having more of those. I've I got to be so, quite yeah, honest with absolutely. you. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but thank you very much for that. And thank you, Canon uh, Chris, for telling us a lot more about the Catholic Church in Wales. I feel far better informed. It's a, a scrape of the surface. It's so deep. One thing I didn't mention that I do like, though, to go back, is, is the Welsh language. What yeah. a beautiful... I mean, when you were pronouncing things there, I was thinking, crikey, I'm glad I don't have to have a crack at that. <laughs> but it is very beautiful. And, and even growing up in Gloucestershire, I remember when we crossed the border, just seeing 
the different language on the roads and the road signs. It's sort of, you know, it, it has a special feel because it has its own language. And I think that's important, isn't it? Oh, very much so. I mean, uh, I mean, language is, is very defining. And the Welsh language, it, it, it looks odd uh, because it looks as if it has lots of different letters. But in fact, it's a very beautiful language. As you know, my name is Thomas, and uh, and the the Thomas family motto is Idu Bordioch, which means to God give thanks. And yeah. you ended up being a priest. Should not have been a surprise then. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think me being a priest is always a testimony to the good humour of God. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you ever so much. Appreciate it, and uh, we'll we'll speak again in the coming months. Thanks Indeed. very much, thank James. You. Thank, thank you, James. To God give thanks. The Thomas family motto. Fantastic motto too, isn't it? I think we can all adopt that in Eastertide and indeed beyond. You learn something new every day. I didn't know that was the uh, family motto of our General Secretary. Right, in a short while, we'll have an excellent scripture reflection from Fleur Dorrell from our project The God Who Speaks, opening the Bible at, appropriately, the Acts of the Apostles. But first, we turn our attention to Ukraine. Of course, the people of Ukraine and the whole region are in our prayers at this time as we look on with pain in our hearts at the the death and destruction that this war, now into its third month, is causing. Caritas Internationalis and our aid and development charity CAFOD are spearheading the humanitarian response. But in the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, following the Julian calendar, the community has just been through Holy Week, a week of carrying the cross with with much poignancy, of course. And they have arrived at the resurrection and Easter. And so it's appropriate then that we have an extended Easter reflection from Bishop Kenneth Novakovsky, the eparchal bishop of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church of the Holy Family. Bishop Ken. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. This is the greeting that we Christians of the Ukrainian Catholic Church give each other during the Easter season. Christ is risen, indeed he is risen. But we know that there can be no resurrection without Good Friday. We've just recently celebrated Easter, but we had to, first of all, go through Holy Week and arrive at Good Friday, at Jesus' suffering, at his crucifixion and his death for our sins. Our sins were nailed on the cross with our Lord. He suffered. When we attend the Good Friday services, we reflect on that suffering. We reflect on the sins that have been nailed onto that cross with our Lord Jesus Christ. But already even in our services on Good Friday, We are given a hope. We are given a glimpse into the future, into the resurrection. And certainly on Holy Saturday, we are already anticipating this resurrection by our liturgical services, which already are stressing the resurrection. And that resurrection comes to us in full on Easter Sunday when we celebrate and In our services, in our Ukrainian Catholic services, we say Christ is risen, indeed he is risen, over and over and over again. And usually in our churches, when the priest announces Christ is risen and people 
respond, indeed he is risen, they also ring bells at that, so that the news can be heard all over the place. This year, it is very challenging for those of us here in Europe because of the war that is being waged in Ukraine, because of the Russian invasion that happened on February 24th. Ukraine is still being crucified. Its people are still being nailed to the cross. And this cross that they are having to bear is not one that they deserve, but one that they have to endure. And just as we know on Good Friday that Jesus was aided by Simon the Syrian who helped him carry the cross, it must have been a horrible time for that person who may never have met, didn't know Jesus before. But there he is, having to carry that cross through Jerusalem, hearing the insults being hurtled at Jesus, and maybe even he himself was ridiculed and had to bear some lashes that were given out by the Roman guards leading him to his death. So too, we see the valiant efforts of so many people, especially in Poland and in Romania, in Moldavia, who are helping those Ukrainians fleeing from their land, the displaced people, more than five million people. And they're helping them bear this cross that they've been nailed to. Here in the United Kingdom, there have been so many people who have opened their homes, their hearts, and their arms to welcome the displaced people. Jesus has told us that wherever there are two or three gathered in my name, I also am there with you. So we rejoice at being able to be together with each other during this Easter time and to reassure each other that Christ is risen, indeed he is risen. And by helping our sisters and brothers who have had to flee from harm's way and have arrived here in the United Kingdom, we are those beacons of hope, hope for a better time. So how can we help further? We can continue to support Ukraine in the ways that we're able to do through donations. If we're not able to ourselves sponsor and host a displaced family from Ukraine. Perhaps we know in our neighborhood that somebody is hosting somebody who has been displaced. Can we help them out? We can find where our local Ukrainian community centers are and perhaps phone them, get in touch with them and ask them, how can I help? How can I welcome? How can I be part of this welcoming to this place. Dear sisters and brothers, let us unite our prayers and pray for peace, for peace not only in Ukraine, but in the world. And let us remember that if we want peace internationally, we have to start with peace in our very home, amongst our family members, on our street, in our community, and then our leaders, our civil leaders, will come from homes where peace is the norm rather than where 
misunderstandings and arguments are the norm. When we're celebrating the resurrection, we are celebrating, of course, new life. We are celebrating that we are no longer bound by the chains of hell, the chains that we have put on ourselves because of our sinful ways. Resurrection can take many forms for us. Of course, there's the resurrection of the soul and body at the end of the world. There's also resurrection in the form of liberation from fear, from loneliness, from bondage. So this Easter, when we are celebrating the resurrection, and if we are able to help people who are in need, regardless of whether they're displaced people from Ukraine or others who are struggling in our own families and neighborhoods, we can be that witness to the resurrection of Christ, that the tomb is empty, but at the same time not void of anything. The tomb is empty, but filled with Jesus's light, Jesus's grace, and with the Holy Spirit who is present to us at all times when we're celebrating and when we're suffering, when we're happy and when we're crying. May God bless all of you during this Easter season with all of his blessings as we rejoice that Jesus Christ is risen and he rose from the dead, conquering death by his death. And to those who were locked in the tombs, he has granted life eternal. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. In our Ukrainian churches throughout the world, we greet each other with Christos Voskras, and the response is Voisna Voskras. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Christos Voskras, Voisna Voskras. Thanks, Bishop Ken, Bishop Kenneth Novakovsky there, the eparchial bishop of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church of the Holy Family. I think the word is hope, isn't it? Hope in the risen Christ. And it should be said, of course, that we keep all those suffering in the world's conflict zones in our prayers at this time. Yemen, Syria, sadly, the list goes on. We conclude our podcast by opening the Bible. And today, Fleur Dorrell from our scripture project, The God Who Speaks, joins us to give an introduction to the Acts of the Apostles. A whistle-stop tour of the Acts of the Apostles. Luke's Gospel brought the reader to the climactic point of the resurrection and the first story of the proclamation of the good news of the risen Christ to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. His second work shows how the apostles spread the good news from Jerusalem to Rome and then to the ends of the known world, as we read in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and 18 verse 14. All the criteria of style, vocabulary, literary structure and theology leave no doubt that this work is by the same mind and pen as the author of the Gospel of Luke. Now Luke was rather like a historian in the modern sense. He was able to tell a good story and he gives us useful background to the letters which St Paul had written 30 years before. We understand Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, the Corinthians and the Ephesians 
all the better for knowing the account Luke gives in Acts. His 15th chapter concerning the so-called council in Jerusalem is a valuable supplement to what we read about early Christian controversies in Paul's letter to the Galatians. One of the great features of Acts is the strength of community among the early Christians. They remained faithful to the teaching of the apostles, to the brotherhood, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers, Luke records in Acts chapter 2. And they all lived together and owned everything in common, and they shared their food gladly. A huge theme that runs through Acts is the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. Luke writes about Peter's address in the house of Cornelius when he tells them that he had come to realise that God does not have favourites, but that anybody of any nationality who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to him. Later on in chapter 10, while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit came down on all the listeners, Jewish believers and pagans too, and Peter gave orders for the pagans to be baptised. Acts is known for the long speeches given by various people along the way. A good example is Peter's speech explaining the significance of the offence of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and Stephen's speech marking the turning point of the Christian mission away from Jerusalem in Acts chapter 7. Paul also gives two great speeches, one in the synagogue at Antioch, an example of Christian preaching to the Jews in Acts chapter 13, and the other before the Areopagus of Athens, an example of Christian preaching to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 17. Luke does not paint over difficulties in the church to portray a rosy picture. The early church was not without its problems. Church members lied to one another. There were ethnic and racial tensions between Jews and Gentiles and the most notable missionary team of Paul and Barnabas disbanded over a disagreement. However, what we learn is that God speaks to us through the emerging church, even though that church is not yet perfect. But through Luke, perhaps God is telling us that the church's essential purpose does not change, to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. As Peter said to them, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit, mentioned 56 times, permeates the Acts. In our liturgy, the early chapters of Acts provide the first reading on the Sundays of Eastertide. We are presented with a portrait of the ideal Christian community of Jerusalem united by four aspects of faith, through daily prayer, through the witness and teaching of the apostles, the breaking of bread, and in fellowship and charity to others. Finally, the Acts of the Apostles help us to understand the origins of baptism, Eucharist, and confirmation flowing from Pentecost, through the grace of the Holy Spirit. While this book is called the Acts of the Apostles, it could just as easily be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. If you want to know more about scripture and how the great biblical adventure is relevant today, then go to our God Who Speaks initiative. Explore and download many exciting resources, ideas and articles to enrich your faith journey at 
godwhospeaks.uk. Yes, indeed, that's www.godwhospeaks.uk for our excellent scripture project. And I hope that that's whet your appetite somewhat to follow our daily podcast readings from Acts, Reading Acts in Easter. Now, to do that, you can go to www.cbcew.org.uk slash podcast, podcast singular, and then click on the series Reading Acts in Easter. OK, that's it for this episode of At the Foot of the Cross. Thanks so much for listening. Much to discuss next month. We have the Holy Land Coordination, a pilgrimage of prayer and persuasion to the lands of Christ's birth, ministry, passion and resurrection. Some of our bishops involved there and the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales has that mandate to organise that pilgrimage. We do have Day for Life coming up in a few months and the World Meeting of Families also fast approaching. So all this and more next month. So do stick with us if you will. Okay, take good care. Bye for now.